You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 118. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingbox.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications, allowing you to see inside any stack, any app, at any scale, anywhere. And Wayscript, a new way to build software that gives you flexible building blocks to seamlessly integrate, automate, and host tools in the cloud. And Educative.io, level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right, and today we're going to be talking about DevOps and uh, whether or not it's a position, a title, or role, or uh, something else completely. But first, let's uh, have a little bit of podcast news, and I, I guess uh, I'm going to go first because it's my prerogative, and uh, I'm going with iTunes with Kev Kerr, Chase, and Matthew Summers. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. Definitely. And then on Stitcher, we have Blocked Ticket. I like that a lot. I've been there. <laughs> we, we've had a few of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as Joe said, we're, this episode is going to be a little light compared to some of the ones, uh, you know, leading up to this. But we're, we're basically going to be discussing like uh, DevOps and what it what it means in the world. But basically, like I wanted to give some background as to how this came about, because where this whole episode is going to come from is from a personal pet peeve of mine. <laughs> where I've had uh, discussions with like friends and coworkers and whatnot, where somebody will come up to me, they'll be like, you know what? We need to, we need to hire a DevOps engineer. And I'm just like, Oh, like a little bit of my heart sinks. And I'm like, what? No. And so I've long held this uh, belief or battle or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you will see by the end of the episode where we all land. But I've long held this position that uh, DevOps is not a title. It's not a job title. It is a it's a function that everyone should participate in, right? And we've had like some brief portions of this conversation, whether it be on air or in Twitter or whatever, where it's like, oh, but you know, you're what about like ops? you know, people in operations or IT or whatever. And, you know, but so that's what we're going to get into. So, so there's the framework of like some of the background behind it and we'll go from there. Yeah. Imagine, imagine you're at the office and somebody says we need to hire a DevOps engineer and outlaw comes running across the room. (laughs) It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) And then an hour long conversation ensues. That's what this is. (laughs) Busted in like the Kool-Aid man. That's right. That's right. If I do on Reddit, anytime someone says full stack on like Reddit or dev two, I'm like smash. Matt, you know what? You should also share the link about that, that you just did. Um, recently, I think, uh, Oh no, that was just a tweet that you did. That was a tweet where where you got irritated about people saying that full stack was a myth. 
Oh, uh, but I don't. I don't know. Was are you talking about the one yesterday or today? Or right. yeah, yeah. It's funny. We all have we all have those things that tweak us. So I think here's the first thing, right? So knowing what this is, there's some people that have heard of DevOps, or some people that haven't. But we should at least have a baseline here. So the very first thing that we need to answer is what is DevOps. So. I'm going to go to this new relic page because they write a lot of stuff for, you know, automation and this, and they actually have an entire page dedicated to what, you know, DevOps and this whole notion of it. But there's some interesting history here. The word DevOps was coined in 2009 by Patrick Dubois, who became one of the gurus. So, so we have a starting date ish, right? 2009. That's kind of interesting. That's 10 years ago now. Um, and yeah. they go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's also important that when we say that uh, Patrick Dubois was one of the creators of the term, like he's also the one of the authors of the DevOps handbook, which we'll be going over at some point in time. So they actually in that in that book they go over how the term came to be. Yeah. So. In short, it combines the word development and operations, right? So dev ops. So we won't go too deep into this here, but I did want to read off this, this definition that New Relic even shared from Gartner. DevOps represents a change in IT culture focusing on rapid IT service delivery through the adoption of agile, lean practices, in the context of a system-oriented approach, DevOps emphasizes people and culture and seeks to improve collaboration between operations and development teams. DevOps implementations utilize technology, especially automation tools that can leverage an increasingly programmable and dynamic infrastructure from a lifecycle perspective. So that was a whole bunch of words to say what DevOps is. I still don't know. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I mean, the culture uh, thing's weird. Like, well, okay, but it's going to come back. It, okay, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to. I'm so glad you said that. I don't yeah. know if you see the excitement in my voice. <laughs> um, but I have I have long been of the opinion, and and actually, the DevOps handbook tells me I'm wrong. But uh, that that it's really more about finding ways to automate your your world right right uh whether that's the build the test the the deployment you know all of the infrastructure scaling out the infrastructure like uh you know but um that view is not actually shared with the the devops handbook um i think i would have been in that same camp by the way like when i hear devops i'm thinking of you know, how do you, how do you deploy? How do you build? How do you stand up your infrastructure? How do you make sure it's running? Like all these, all these monotonous things that people tended to do themselves in the past. It's like automating the mundane out of your life is, is kind of how I've always looked at DevOps. And, and so like some of this, like the culture thing and some of those, they just seem kind of weird. Cause it's like, Wait, wait, how is automation a culture? And, and so I guess that's where I'm curious to see where you go with that. Do you want to skip to it now? I mean, we can. I don't know. Joe, what's your thoughts? Uh, um, I don't know. I still want to get my head around like kind of what we really mean by DevOps. And so um, 
So I want to get there, but I still am trying to understand like what we're even really saying it is. Like when we talk about, you know, I Google the same things. Like I see talking about being a culture and like I know what I think about when I say, when I say I want DevOps or when I'm happy with a, a DevOps something or other, it basically means that I've got like a, a nice continuous delivery platform and it's reliable and I trust it. And when I think of kind of the opposite of that, I think about like kicking the can down the road, doing things manually, doing things because we don't have time now or because we're being scrappier in the name of being agile or lean. Sometimes we'll do things the same old uh, crappy, inconsistent and manual way because, you know, sometimes we think it's faster. And so I, when I hear someone say DevOps culture, I, I kind of think about pushing back on that and saying, no, no, let's take the time to get this done in like a professional professional and uh, reproducible way. And so that's kind of what I think about when we talk about it being a culture, but it's just so hard to, to define. But when you, when you say that it's a cultural kind of thing, it's company culture, then you, I understand like why it makes sense to say that someone you can't, you can't hire culture. Like just like you can't hire an agileista, right? You have to hire a programmer or somebody else. Yeah. That's actually a really good point, right? You, you can't hire a culture. Like you either adopt it or you don't. You hire people to fit the culture or sometimes, to enhance the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's easier to describe it though. If you talk about maybe like what it isn't. Okay. Cause you're right. It is, it is, it is kind of difficult, like, you know, to describe what it is, but it's really easy to understand, you know, if you go back to like way we used to do things versus the way we want to do things. Right. And I say that because sometimes the way we want to do them isn't the way we should. (laughs) I mean, come on, man. We've all done that manual deployment. All right. So, so, I mean, think about it though. Like, let's go back to uh, the days of the dot com boom. Right. And what did that, what did that mean? And like, take like an honest approach to it. Let's honestly think about it and just brainstorm it out loud. What kind of things had to happen? And, and not just the project planning part of it. Right. But, uh, you know, the developers would would have to, you know, they would be given some kind of requirements, but they would eventually build something, right? And, you know, that something would be like, oh, hey, uh, it's going to require uh, an Apache web server uh, or or it's going to require a web sphere or a Tomcat or, Cold you know, fusion. something. Yeah, Cold okay. Fusion. Cold yeah. Fusion. There we go. Uh, it's going to need some kind of database, right? So, hey, here's, I, I need you to you know, here's a, a, a starting database that you could uh, restore from, right? That's either going to be an Oracle or a DB2 or a SQL server or something, right? And then it's going to be given to somebody as a system administrator. It's going to be, you're going to tell him, oh, hey, by the way, uh, go buy this hardware and stand it up. And this is the version of the operating system that, you know, I was using. If, if he's lucky, he's going to be told that. And, but definitely nothing, nothing about patches, uh, or patch levels and, uh, you know, other software He's really going to be given, let's be honest. He's going to be told like, Hey, this thing runs under AIX, uh, this version, you know, major minor version, uh, with DB2, this major minor version. And that's, and you know, that's about it. Go install it. Right. Go install <laughs> that. No idea. Like what the, you know, credentials or you know, security levels need to be Right. Uh, maybe like high level, like, oh, hey, this is the credential I'm going to use to connect to the database from my application. That's probably about as far as that's going to, that conversation is going to go. Uh, so then, you know, he's going to be responsible for setting that kind of thing up, right? 
networking engineers might be told like, oh, hey, we got to add this new box to the environment, right? Uh, you know, if you were way ahead of your time, you might have had security-related people back then. But let's be honest, it was the 90s, so you, you didn't. Uh, but, you know, going forward, you know, 10 years later, you would definitely see where you would, right? So, so now those people have to be involved to be like, okay, hey, wait a minute, whoa, you, you can't you can't leave that port open. I don't care what the application is doing, right? So you see like all these different people that are involved, but they're involved in later stages of the game, right? Like in that scenario that I just described, you didn't involve that sysadmin or that network engineer until it was like, here's my thing, go deploy it, right? Put it, put it on the website, make it real, right? And in the DevOps world though, and this is where the cultural part comes in. And this is why, you know, the handbook doesn't agree with my definition of just automating things where it doesn't agree is you're involving all of those people earlier. So the communication is happening sooner rather than later and they're communicating and they're all contributing to the same automation goal. Okay. Right. Yeah. And they never go away. It's not just like some step that kind of comes and goes. It's like part of the process and it's there forever. Like ideally you're going to be automating security, you know, either scanning or, or something, you know, um, checks into the pipeline. You're going to be doing these kind of things like all along. Like once you set it up, it keeps on with you forever. Not just like that one week you brought in that consultant. So we're basically saying here that the culture is getting everybody, everybody has skin in the game, but communicating, right? As opposed to, hey, go run this task, go do this, go go put this out here, open up this port. Now people are involved and and have some sort of input into the process is what we're saying. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense too. Because like that other way I described things was basically like a waterfall approach to the deployment of your application, right? Like, well, there's nothing for the admin to deploy until the developers are done. Right. And then when he, when they're done, then we'll push it out to the production server and, you know, environment or whatever. Right. Whereas today's environment is all about faster feedback loops. Right. We want, we want to get things out in front of the customer sooner so that we can understand like, Hey, did it work or was it a bad idea? And if it did work, what about it? Did they specifically like, was there any of the additional things that we could tweak? Right. And so those faster, you know, loop feedback loops also require more communication and faster communication and communication happening up front. So just like we went from waterfall projects to agile, we went from you know, manual deployments to this DevOps mentality. Okay. So let me, let me throw us completely off the rails here with a sidewinder and that's the cloud. So all of this stuff that you're talking about totally existed even up to five years ago, right? Like all these, all these, I don't know if you want to call them silos, but different departments, right? So you have your hardware department, you have your security people, you have your, your networking people, you have your developers, all that, right? A lot of that's kind of converged in the cloud now because you have like, are we saying that the definition of a DevOps person is sort or, or somebody that's the people involved in DevOps 
is it different now? Because you don't necessarily have those same groups of people managing hardware and infrastructure internally. A lot of that stuff's virtual now, right? Okay. So, so, oh man, it's almost like, it's almost like an alley oop and you just like set me up. <laughs> so, because this has actually come up before, like, you know, in I that's a sports ball like, thing, right? Yeah. Sports ball. Okay. Uh, I think, I think it's like the one with the big giant white ball yes, that okay. they use. Something like, like that. Golf. Yeah. Okay. Golf. Yes. Oh, that's right. There we go. Uh, I was so close. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, I mean, this has come up before where, uh, you know, people brought it up to me like either on like a Slack or Twitter or whatever, you know, and it's like, Hey, wait a minute. You know, you can't, you, you're still going to, you can't, um, like get rid of all those people and and you're not, you're, you know, you're not, it's not that, it's not that, uh, you know, the developer themselves are going to be able to like automate everything away. Like, you know, everybody should be, should contribute to a part of the DevOps thing. And, and from my perspective as a developer, if that means that I can automate, you know, like, Hey, here's a Docker or here's a Kubernetes part of this puzzle, right? Then I should contribute that, right? But there are still going to be people that are going to build on top of that, right? So, I mean, like, for example, I don't know if you've bothered to look, but AWS has got, they, there's a lot there, right? Like, it's not any small thing, right? Massive. So even if you were to say, okay, hey, fine, I'm going to go and I'm going to set up a, uh, a Postgres instance, using AWS RDS and, you know, I'm going to set up what I think it should be. And like, you know, I'm going to take a stab at, uh, you know, what I think the subnets should be, the VPC should be, uh, you know, all those different things, right? Somebody else, uh, uh, you know, uh, that might have a, a grander view, a bigger picture view of the situation might be like, well, Hey, that's cute. But uh, actually this is the security group that this thing should belong to. Let me make these changes. Like, you know, so, everybody's going to contribute, but there's, you know, you're always, you're still going to have that same type of system administrator or same type of uh, network administrator type of person in, in role and mentality. That's going to look at it from a different, come at it from a different perspective, right. And bring something different to the table, right. You're not, you're not getting away from all those things. And even though it's still virtual, it still has to be done. And by the way, it might not always be virtual too. Even in like an Amazon uh, or you know, AWS kind of scenario, if you use a, a a VPC, you might have portions of that of your on-prem network, uh, in, you know, working with um, the hybrid with, cloud. Yeah, and we we've talked about even similar features that um, Azure has with connecting. Um, to, to, to on-prem resources. Doing something like Azure Stack. I, I mean, I guess the only reason I bring it up is, and, and I'm sure we'll have some information on this here in a minute, is it's really easy when you start looking at DevOps. If, you, if you're talking about Azure things like ARM templates, right? You're basically telling it what the infrastructure is, right? You're telling it, I need these type of instances. I need this much compute, this much whatever. These services are going to run here. These are the networks that you spin up with all of it. So are we saying, because if, if we're kind of boiling it down to something like an ARM template, and I don't know what, um, AWS calls theirs, uh, 
they they have like recipe type stuff too. Formations, yeah, cloud formations. Cloud formations. Yeah, or, there we go. Yeah, cloud formation. And then and then there's also Terraform, right? There's these type of things that that exist that that overlay all kinds of clouds. So my question is this: Are we saying then that when you're building up these things that are essentially going to build up your infrastructure? Because the whole point is infrastructure as code, right? Are we saying that you're going to have a security person involved and he's going to tweak this part of the ARM template and we're going to have a, an application developer that only tweaks this part of the template? Is that what we're saying? Or are we saying that everybody's going to have their input and then there's going to be some developer that goes and makes this thing happen? So, okay. So if we, if we go strictly by like the handbook, for example, then yeah, you would have people involved like throughout throughout the life of that, right? And so those other those other people involved are going to be like, "Hey, for your API calls, like specifically, like here's how you're going to access that, right? Like I'm going to set up the you know, the the secure the proper security groups to allow this to come through, but this is, you know, how you're going to access it, right? And so, you know, there those those roles now transition somewhat uh maybe even unbeknownst to them in a way that is more like they're basically describing like, Hey, here's, here's the available API or how to access the API or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Like they are involved and they are involved early and often and remain throughout the life of it. Right. That, that isn't going to go away. It's interesting. I, I, I still, it's harder for me to picture this in the cloud world than it is when everything's on prem. Right. Yeah. That's what I keep getting stuck on is uh, if I imagine like a small team, like less than 10 people, and you've got a, a product to say it's already running in the cloud. It's it's just weird to me to think it's like, hey, we should all have a part in like, um, you know, moving this thing to Kubernetes or something. And like to, to think that all 10 people are supposed to run out and research that is just, you know, it's impractical. I don't think anyone's saying that. But really, it's just kind of I think it's more about speaking to the message that like you can't just outsource DevOps to a third party or, or one person. Like each person has to be involved and they need to own their piece all the way through to production. So it's not that like 10 people need to go out and learn Kubernetes, but people need to know what ports, what permissions, uh, what their, you know, application performs like and needs to perform like, and is responsible for maybe what their uh, key performance indicators are to know if their system is up or down or like, it's not DevOps person's job to know if your app is healthy or not. You need to provide that heartbeat and you need to be responsible for communicating with whoever did set that up in order to kind of get those things working together. Right. Is that kind of the gist, just of things? Yeah. I, I like a lot of the way you just worded that. Right. Because, you know, going kind of similar to your previous statement about you can't like hire culture. Right. You can't, you can't hire one person or two people and expect them to be able to do all of the, DevOps related things to your, for your entire environment, because they're not going to know everything that needs to be done. Right. Like that's why it's a cultural thing. It's like you said, Joe, everybody has to contribute their piece to the ultimate puzzle. Right. It's not one, it's not a job title. It's not one person's thing to do. It's a, it's a thing that everybody should contribute to. So, and be a part of. I like that. I do, but tell me this, there's going to be somebody that specializes in what this DevOps type thing looks like, because let's take the heartbeat as a perfect example. That's one that I really like because 
a lot of times application developers, when they write their application, they write it in a way that assumes it works, right? Like let's, let's be honest. Like you write your, your first e-commerce application. It talks to a database. All your code is like, yeah, everything works. And then as more and more people hit your site or whatever it is, it starts going down and you start encountering errors, timeouts, locks, whatever. And, and then you start having to program defensively, right? Like check for this. Was there a problem? Retry, whatever. So this is where I'm kind of coming with the heartbeats is there's got to be somebody saying that, Hey, in order for your application to be ready to deploy, you need to provide us a hook that gives us a way to check the heartbeat of your application, right? Flip that. What if it was the other way around? Okay. What if what if what if some network admin came up to you and said, "Hey, look, ma'am. Um, so I took I took the I took the the Docker uh, image that you provided to us, and uh, we're we're spinning up, you know, this other environment with it using that, or uh, you know, maybe we're we're doing our own Kubernetes uh, implementation or whatever. But hey, what I need from you is here's an endpoint." that I need you to send a heartbeat to. So I'm going to provide that to you, right? And you, based off of what I'm going to get from you from that heartbeat that you're going to send to the endpoint that I'm providing to you, then I'm going to know whether or not you died and I need to spin spin up a new version of you or whatever, right? Or maybe based on some latency, I can make a decision about like, hey, maybe uh, he's getting, maybe there's some kind of problem there or whatever, and I need to like start going horizontal or something, right? Or whatever that metric is, you know, maybe maybe part of it, maybe part of that heartbeat includes like, uh, you know, utilization, some some form of utilization that I might use to help determine that, right? So in that in that regard, you're just like basically throwing those those heartbeats out there, out to whoever's listening, right? But some network admin gave you the endpoint that he the API that he wanted you to hit specifically, right? That you're just gonna like fire and forget. Right. And then he's going to use that information to then decide to make decisions on like how to scale the app. Right. I mean, uh, this is all like, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is illustrating the point. Like, there's got to be somebody somewhere that says these are the things that are required for this to work. It, like there's got to be somebody that's coordinating those efforts, right? Like it's not like you're going to have your network guy just talking to the app developer, right? Like maybe the net, network guy needs to be talking to the security guy. There's got to be somebody that's putting this stuff together. And so sort of playing devil's advocate here, why wouldn't there be somebody that's in a DevOps type role that knows how to put all these pieces together? No, 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 no. It just like I said, playing devil's advocate. Like, okay, there's so, got to be so, there's got to be somebody that has that higher level picture that says this is how the pieces fit together. That, but that's only one part of the entire DevOps picture. Totally, though, totally. But it's right? a big yeah. picture, big part of it, though. Yeah, but but we agree that automating the build is a part of that. So mm-hmm. now, do you expect that network? Uh, would you expect the network administrator to be responsible for that for automating the build? Yeah, why would why would he have the to DevOps know? guy would <laughs> or gal or gal no or gal, or gal. Um, yeah. why would the DevOps person in your world have to be the expert in also everything related to security everything related to networking everything related to the operating system everything related to how to build your application totally get everything it. related to it. that's what I'm saying like you know you as the developer can can do your part right to say like hey here's here's the template 
right? You could provide a Docker image or a Kubernetes, uh, you know, file or uh, a Docker compose file or whatever as a starting point, but they're going to come in with their own expertise to add on top of it. So everybody's contributing a little bit to this ultimate reality, right? And, you know, the, that, that, in that example, that network engineer, I'm not going to expect him to know or even care how to compile my application, let alone run the unit test for it. And I think we can all agree that that is at least the easy version of, you know, one of the easy parts to the DevOps world to, to wrap your head around. Right. Yeah. So, well, well, maybe you should explain that because there's probably a lot of people that are still working in, in situations where they don't have anything automated. Right. I mean, there's plenty of places that have not invested time in automating anything. So maybe they don't understand what you're talking about. Right. So maybe it's worth talking about a little piece of that in terms of like the build and the deploy and what that means and why, why an application developer could easily be in charge of that and not a, a DevOps engineer or something like that. If that's even a title, which I'm Um, sure it is. Right. I, I, my guess is, it pains me when I see it as a title. I yeah. was going to say, I would lay money on the fact that if you went out and looked on LinkedIn jobs or something, there's probably plenty of DevOps engineers type positions around. Every time I see that, anytime I see a, a job listing for a DevOps engineer, I always think to myself, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> because basically, the way I interpret that is they're asking somebody else to come in and figure out how to compile their code or deploy their code. Right. And it's like, and in my mind, I'm like, well, why don't you, why doesn't, why isn't everybody contributing to that? Why, why does it become that one person's responsibility to figure out, oh, Alan wrote some code. Now it's on me to figure out like, Hey, why won't this compile on another machine? Hey, how come when I run it on this other machine, it gives me a runtime error. Right. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, if you had provided some of those, like, Hey, here's how, you know, uh, you know, here, here, here's a Docker compose for it, right? Then you can at least have a starting point. Well, I think um, like someone needs to know what options are even available. Like if if you aren't in this world, then you may not really know what heartbeats could do for you, right? So it's nice to have someone who kind of has that to drive it. I don't think it necessarily needs to be that role. Maybe SREs like site reliability managers or, or engineers are are something that's maybe a little bit closer to that, where they're not DevOps but they. Uh, kind of have more of a, an ops kind of breadth of knowledge. Cause I, like, I just know for me, like, I don't have the knowledge to know, uh, that Helm charts. You know, I, I basically know the name Helm charts. I don't know what they do. I don't know how they help. I don't know what problems they solve. Or, you know, there might be problems I have that I don't even recognize that maybe I need Helm charts for. Maybe that's totally inappropriate for my need, but somebody needs to, to know that stuff and, and at least know enough to see that and recognize it that there's things out there that need to be researched. And I just don't know, really know how to delegate that without kind of literally delegating someone or something is kind of saying like you, I want you to be kind of lead on this thing. So you talk to whoever you need to talk to, but somebody needs to kind of drive this boat. So by the way, what he just said, I think is how people end up with the title DevOps, right? I think it's not because it should be a title because I agree with you. Like, I mean, so I've done DevOpsy type things, right? Off, off the back of other people that have, have set up a lot of these things. And, and I agree 
the developer or whoever's involved in whatever project should also be involved at that level. But I also think that what Joe just said is why it happens because ultimately there's going to be, if you're in an organization that has absolutely zero automation, zero deployment stuff, zero anything set up, right? It's still very much a manual thing. Hey, you want to deploy your app? Okay. Go build it in the thing, copy the binary somewhere and do it right. There's going to be somebody at some point that's going to get fed up and be like, I'm sick of building this thing 12 times a day and giving it out to somebody because I'm wasting time, right? And then somebody's going to go research it and they're going to get a lot of knowledge either in something like Azure DevOps or Team City or Jenkins or one of these other platforms, right? And then at that point, at that very point is when somebody becomes a DevOps engineer because oh, you need to know how that thing's being built and deployed. You need to go talk to Outlaw because he's the one that set up the build and the deployment server. And that's, I think that's why, I know you get frustrated with it, but I'm all, I'd am i lay money on the fact that's why this title exists because there's somebody that can come in and say, oh, we need to automate things. I know how to do Jenkins. I know how to do Team City, and they can go to town. And it's not two weeks worth of research to be able to get the first build up and running. Right. And that's why you end up with that title. <sighs> it's specialized knowledge, right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, it, but I don't want it to be specialized. That's the thing, but it is That's the thing, but, but it's not though. I mean like, okay, hold on. Let, let's say that among the three of us, because I've seen the stuff that we've done over the years. Right. And, and I would say to our credit that, the three of us, I think, do help contribute to the bigger DevOps picture, right? Like you might, even if we don't give ourselves the credit for it, you know, I've seen the three of us will provide like, hey, here's the Docker Compose file. Here's a Kubernetes file. Here's the Docker image that I'm using for this. Uh, here's the scripts to do this. Like in one way or another, or or we've actually gone out to like, you know, if it was a specific tool that we were using, like you mentioned um, Team City before or a Jenkins you know, like, hey, here's the here's the specific tool, and I set up, I automated this thing, right? Um, you know, so so, and and to my point, like that to me is is good. Like everybody's contributing a little bit, right? It doesn't fall on one person's shoulders to like carry that entire burden alone. Completely right? agree. Yeah, because because that's where that's where it frustrates me when when I see it as a title as a job title instead of like something that everybody should do. Like, you know, you wouldn't expect one person to have the job title of, uh, I don't know, pick something silly. Um, Oh, geez. Uh, Stack overflow searcher, right? Like if you have a question to go that you want to Google or, or, you know, like, Hey, go to Joe because he does all of our Google searches for us. And, uh, you know, or like he'll do a stack overflow search for you. If like you wouldn't hire that, right? Like everybody's going to go and be resourceful and figure out like if they need to search out how to do something, they're going to go and do it on their own. Right. And so that's what you want. In my mind, this is, this is similar to that, right? Like you're, you're, you're helping others in, in that respect. Okay, um, so maybe, maybe that's kind of the the point there is like you want a team of people that those ten team, team people to constantly be asking how can we make this better, and if that means going out and researching to figure out why whatever like you should eventually stumble upon Helm charts if you need Helm charts. Maybe it'll take you a little bit longer, 
because you're not, you know, near there. But hopefully if you're kind of communicating with your team and like always trying to do the next best thing in order to kind of automate or monitor or whatever uh, your your work life, then maybe you will hit this stuff eventually. Well, I mean, let, let's even take it a step back. Like you might, you might decide, decide like, okay, hey, for my application, I want to use um, certificate-based authentication using X509 certificates, right? And, and, you know, you provide your way of doing it, right? But, you know, I'm not expecting you to become a certificate, you know, um, guru. Yeah. You know, overnight, right? So, so you might have somebody else on your teams that, it, that, that is, that fits into that um, uh, SecOps kind of role, they will be like, okay, here's how we're going to provide those those certs for that authentication to you, right? Like, that's cute that you, you know, had your way that you were doing it for development purposes, but in the production environment, this is how it's really going to happen, right? And, and you know, <sighs> yeah, I can't figure out a better way to describe that. I mean, here's the thing, right? I think, so what we're saying is... <clears throat> A bigger part of DevOps is the culture of communication and, and people working together to create whatever the end product is. But along the way, there's the technical know-how and abilities that are, that are specialized, right? It's a, it's, it's like the difference between somebody who is an expert in SQL server versus somebody who's an expert in Oracle, right? There's a different set of tools. There's different programming, uh, syntax. For the stuff, just like if you get into the world of automation, which is a part of what we're saying DevOps is, right? I think the key is, is when you say DevOps, if it truly encompasses culture, security, continuous delivery, monitoring, alerting, all that kind of stuff, that's a whole bunch of stuff, right? But when we start talking about when somebody gets um, shoehorned into a DevOps role, we're really talking about people with the knowledge to work with the tooling, right? The, the, um, build servers, the continuous delivery pipelines, the, um, man, I'm trying to think of anything else that would come in it. Like, like some of the security things, um, access, hooking it up to source control. Like, I think that's where, it, and it's probably because it's been coined a DevOps engineer. That's really what it boils down to. It's like, it's like, you know, we're full stack guys. All three of us are full stack guys, but it's easy when you see somebody is called a front end developer or a Re React developer or a JavaScript developer, right? There are also people that are C sharp developers or Java developers or whatever. That's kind of how I see this DevOps name is, right? I think, I think what you've talked about so far opens up my mind a little bit in terms of what it means to, to invest in DevOps, but I can still see where you say, Hey, this guy is specialized. It may be DevOps is the wrong name. Maybe you say this guy's a, an Azure, uh, pipeline expert, or this person is a team city guru, right? Like I think, I think that's what most people have in their heads. You know, like anytime you hear somebody say something about DevOps, what does it always come down to? Like, I know, I know we all have the same thought in our heads, Outside of like researching, like what are you usually thinking about when somebody's like, "Hey, we need to get some DevOps in place." Yeah, you know, I, I guess the when you the more I think about it, it's like someone feels the pain. Someone's doing that manual deploy. Someone knows that they're they're 
doing something manually that shouldn't be. And maybe that's the person that needs to solve that problem one way or another. That's, that's where the change needs to come from and be driven from. Like, cause the, the ops work is happening. The DevOps work, in fact, is happening. It's just not happening as efficiently. And I'm willing to bet that if you're doing one of those tasks manually, then you've got to know that there's a better way out there, right? But you just, you just said the same thing though, right? Like when you hear the word DevOps, you're thinking building automation. More or less, right? You're thinking uh, of yeah, but I mean that was me 30 minutes ago. Now I'm coming around. No, no, but I mean like that was that was what triggered. Anytime somebody's like, "Hey, we need to get some DevOps work in," like we need somebody to focus on DevOps. It's almost always something around automation and deployment, right? It, I mean, yeah. we agree on that. That's like typically if somebody says the word, "We need somebody to focus on DevOps," what does that mean? I mean, I'll agree that I'll agree that we typically think of the you know devops temp, devops tends to uh manage, manifest itself in the form of automating something right right um is typically how we see it right but like if we were to if we were to back up and maybe think like hey how did we ever get here right like how how did this even start um you know go back go back several decades and think about the way, like, if you were to log into your favorite Unix platform and you wanted to compile something there, right? You typically included a make file with it, right? Like there were, you know, that was that was typically part of it, and that make file gave instructions on how to do, uh, you know, to make the to to do the compiling, maybe to do a clean of it, maybe to do an install of it, right? So you could almost look at that as like an early uh, predecessor to the ability to automate portions of it, right? Because now that you have it as code, it's very easy for all of us to be able to wrap our heads around like, oh, hey, well, if I'm doing it on a Unix box, then, uh, you know, that's a very scripty friendly kind of environment, right? I could script something out that could SSH it to another box. That other box could run on some kind of a cron job to you know, hey, look at this input. Uh, if I get a new version of the file, then let me make it, let me install it, and boom, now the app is updated on that one, right? And you like, and that's in a very batch kind of way, right? Where it's just going to run on some kind of a schedule, right? Like, like imagine, imagine forty years ago, if you had like 10, 10 servers, because you were like way ahead of your time if you had ten, but um, you know. And, and you're like, hey, uh, anytime we get a new application, this thing would just be automatically, uh, you know, secure copied over, right? SCP over to the other boxes. And those other boxes would be set up to just automatically, hey, look for uh, a new version of the installer in this directory. And if I find it, unzip it, make it, make install it. And, you know, making, yeah, I said make install already. So, right. So you could kind of already see in that type of world where I described like how we could iterate our way there, right? Now imagine if I gave you all that same source code and yet you had to figure out that make file. Right? You would you hate me? Yep. How much would you hate me? I think is the question. How bit. much would you hate me if I said, here's all of the source for the application? Why why are you mad at me because I didn't give you the make file? I gave you all the source, right? That would be a ludicrous statement, right? Like nobody would stand behind that, right? However, let's fast forward to 2019 
and you live in, and, and your team lives uh, in a world where maybe all of your source code is in, uh, say, like an Azure DevOps, for example, um, or or even like a, a GitLab, for example, we, we has has similar functionality, where, um, let's say, specific to the Azure DevOps world, you know, you can include uh, a YAML file that describes how to build that application. Right now, in my forty-year-old example, you would have been mad if if you didn't give me if I didn't give you the make file. But what happens in twenty nineteen if you don't provide me with that YAML file? Is that acceptable? Shouldn't be. I need Docker Compose up. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Great point. So, so the point there is that like. Environments like uh, GitLab and, and Azure DevOps and others, and even Amazon has a has a similar build service. You know, you can provide a file that describes how to build the thing, and you know, depending on on the environment, it can actually be more specific than just the build. It could include the deployment of it, which is similar to my make install, right? So, so, and and that's just a part of it. Uh, you know, and so to Joe's point about the the Docker compose, right? Like that greatly simplifies your ability to like spin up. You no longer need an, um, you no longer rely on an ops guy to, or, or an IT guy in the department to be like, Oh, Hey, uh, Joe just started. Let me spin up a server for him. Hold on a minute. I got to procure the hardware. I need to, uh, install the latest version of windows. Oh my God. It's still doing windows update. I'll get back to you next week when it's done. Okay, now I got to install SQL Server. Like, you know, all, all of those kind of things, right? Instead, instead now that that same uh, IT ops engineer can just be like, hey, here's, a, here's the, the Docker file that we use, the developers are using. Or maybe the developers gave him a starting point and he like fine-tuned it or whatever. But it's, they're all still part of the same puzzle. I mean, there's even, even a simpler one that anybody that's working with something like NPM, it has its own config.json or whatever, right? And when when you add dependencies to it, you can say, you know, save or save and then dev. Mm-hmm. And then that way, when you go do anybody that goes to start up the application, I guess this is where everybody should be involved, right? Because this is part of it. Like we all remember the days where you onboard somebody new to your company and it's like, dude, I got a wiki page over here that's, you know, 15,000 words long. And after you're done with this, you should have our application up and running, right? If you start putting some DevOps love on this stuff, then hopefully that goes from a 15,000, you know, word document to where it's like, yo dude, uh, clone this repo. And then like you said, Docker compose up it or NPM, uh, init it or npm install it and then run it right like i mean i i do you one better like in our in our world i actually scripted it mm-hmm. it was like Chocolate-y. hey <laughs> hey here's here's a here's a here's a repo right you can like you don't even have to clone the repo you can just copy the files down you know locally but uh one of them is a config that you can like say like hey what are my favorite uh you know here's the applications that you need but you know if you have any favorite uh, code extensions or whatever that you want or uh, other t- favorite tools that you want, you can add them to the to the list and that thing will set up your environment for you. 
Yep. Right? Install install all your favorite stuff on your brand new machine that you just got, but it'll also get you the repo, get it set up for you. Now you're now you're ready to run the application. So I mean that's a great example of where we're diverging from this whole notion where DevOps is just building and deploying, right? We're now talking about, hey, you're a developer, you want your system running? Boom, go run this, right? Like go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I've got a bunch of stuff on this uh, on the next section that I wanted to get to, so don't steal my thunder. Okay, I won't steal your thunder. Actually, we should probably break and then come back to it. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. Head on over to datadog.com slash coding blocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, that was datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today all right if you haven't already left us a review then we would really 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 love it and appreciate it if you did go to codingblocks.net slash review and uh, click one of those links and leave us a review uh, there's uh, itunes and um, or whatever they're calling it now podcast uh, we'll have some uh, some links there. Also, there's other ways to do it that don't involve installing uh, whatever it's called now. So we've got links there. And if you feel so inclined, uh, just know that we will love it forever. We'll love you forever. Thank you. All right. And with that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. <laughs> I saw you, Joe. Uh, you'll have to, if, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, you'll have to watch this on YouTube to see what Joe does when I say it and what I do that he's mocking me. <laughs> All right. So, uh, a couple of episodes back, we asked, would you be interested in doing a coding blocks fantasy football league? And your choices are, how has this not been a thing for six years? Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. Or sports ball, please. No. And lastly, a fantasy game for soccer? Silly Americans. All right. I think Alan went first last time. So, Joe, I'm going to let you go first. Which one do you think would be the top answer and by what percent? I think that the top answer is going to be how has this not been a thing for six years? Yes. Uh, with uh, 79%. 79. Okay. 79%, I am, 78. 78. I am 78. 78. Okay. Totally yep. shocked by your answer. For sure. <laughs> you know, you got to be the change. It's not the one you involved. agree with necessarily. I, I mean, I know what I would want, but I think that people are going to say sports ball, please. No. And I hate More that percentage. because I want it to be the first one. Um, I'm going to go with 40%. 40%. So, uh, Joe says 
Yes, how's this not already been a thing for six years at 78%? N- Alan, Mr. Negative, <laughs> says no. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> no. Uh, at 40%. And the survey says you're both wrong. No way. What? Yeah. Fantasy okay. football. Are you, you silly Americans? Are you serious? <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was the one. Yeah. What right. was I appreciate that was that. the top 43%. That is shocking. Now, I love it. I love it. Now, uh right answer. To Mr. uh Allen Negative Wood uh <laughs> No was the the second at 40. <laughs> uh no, it was like 37. That was close. Hey, that's pretty close. Hey, You're so pretty close. Hey, so for all of you people that like fantasy football out there, I'm the one that I that wanted this survey. So we only need ten. <laughs> so <laughs> if anybody wants to play fantasy football next year, I'm addicted to it. I will play it. So you know, hit me up. We will we will make this happen. Yeah. All right. And start thinking about what you want for a prize. Oh man. <laughs> well, I'm going to win. I guess I'll, I'll just figure it out. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I like the confidence. That's right. All right. Well, for this episode's survey, I forgot to do one. So uh, <laughs> we'll just say then, like, yeah, we'll keep it on topic then with, uh, with this one and say, like, do you agree with Outlaw or not? Yes or no? And what <laughs> or is, maybe what is outlaws? Um, that DevOps. Do you agree that DevOps? Well, how about we just word it as: Is DevOps a? And then we'll say a position, or like I'll just say like, hey, hold on, we're going to do this on the fly. There we I go. mean, like, let me type this out. I like it. All right. So, so erase, erase, erase. Uh, if you've ever heard of that comedian. Um. So the the thing will be is. DevOps A dot 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 a job title hiring now <laughs> or or is it a job function? Whoops, I spelled that wrong. Job function get back to work. How's that? It's one of the two. It's either either you think it's a job title that you would hire a a person to do full time or it's a function of everybody's job. Just do what you need. Right. All right. I like it. This episode is sponsored by Wayscript. Wayscript is a new way to build software. It's a drag and drop programming language that runs in the cloud. Wayscript removes the complexity of integrating with third party tools and APIs all in a flexible environment with full programmatic logic. And when we say integrating with third-party tools, there's a lot of them. I mean, let me let me just run through a quick list here. Let's see. You've got Bing integration, Excel integration, Gmail, GitHub. Uh, what else have we got? Well, what's some big hitters? Who get? All of everything that you would want to do in the Google world. So Google Assistant, Calendar, Sheets. Uh, you got Hacker News, MailChimp, Reddit, Slack, because everybody loves Slack integrations, you know, creating custom Slack bots. So you could do that. You got Spotify, Twitter, uh, you know, just to name a few, right? So there's a ton of integrations right there for you. You can create and share your favorite scripts today by signing up at wayscript.com slash coding blocks. Also, feedback is super appreciated. So 
There's a give feedback link right there in the top right hand corner of every page or interact with the developers in the discord channel that's available at the bottom right of the page. So they are seriously looking for everyone to provide any kind of useful information back to them because they really want to make this platform just amazing. And in that vein, they also have multiple open source repos that you can contribute to to make it better. You know, and when I was talking about all the integrations, I forgot to mention that like, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a quote integration to a third party necessarily. Like, hey, you want to write some JavaScript? Boom. They've got they've got you covered there. Oh, you want to write some Python? Boom. They got you covered there. And hey, if you can't come up with like what you want to write and you need some inter- inspiration, they have ready-made templates available for you at wayscript.com slash library. And speaking of those templates, uh, I set up one to grab all the coding box tweets and my personal tweets to see which were more positive. Uh, coding box won that one. So that was uh, pretty funny to see. And it was really cool just to see how it operated. And now I'm actually working on automating the contest that we run. So I'd like to import a, a list of emails. I'm going to do a little custom Python script there to uh, pick the random number of winners and then um, do whatever I can just to make that easier because, uh, because I'm a programmer and why not? Yeah, I totally forgot to mention, uh, you know, I, I actually did some automation, some scripts too, to where like I can get a daily email that just tells me what the weather is going to be. So I can know like, you know, right away as I'm brushing my teeth, like, oh, uh, here's what the weather look is going to be like for the day when the sunrise, sunset, uh, you know, humidity and all that kind of stuff, as well as here's the big one. Here's the top five, uh, Reddit articles to read on slash programming. Very nice. Hey, and like they mentioned, you can go to wayscript.com slash library for those templates or just go to wayscript.com and click the link there at the top of the page that says templates. But better yet, let's not just go straight to wayscript.com. Let them know that you came there through coding blocks by heading to wayscript.com slash coding blocks. And again, that URL is wayscript.com slash coding blocks. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to get into DevOps. But before we get there, I wanted to touch on um, something that just happened. Uh, so Molly Struve, for anybody who uh, who hangs out on Dev Together, dev.to, uh, Molly Struve is a popular author over there, and I'm a, a huge fan means? of hers. I always wondered why it was called Dev2. I did too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never knew that. <laughs> well, uh, so Molly Struve writes a lot of articles uh, about site reliability engineering, SREing. Uh, Elasticsearch, operations, key performance uh, metrics, things like that, measurability, observability. And uh, so I've, I've been following her for a, a long time now and on Twitter too. And um, she's just officially joined the Dev Together team as their first and their lead site reliability engineer. And uh, so I've been doing a little bit of reading kind of on that role and like what that means. And to me, it kind of um, picks up on a lot of things that are a part of kind of DevOps culture, but they're kind of the other side of things. Because so so often, and we're doing it tonight when we talk about DevOps, we're talking about continuous de- deployment. But a big part of that that we kind of forget about a lot of times, or that just gets kind of like um, uh, lost a little bit because we focus so much on the first part, is that of observability and the actionability of, of what comes after you're actually running. Like, how do you know whether your features are being used how do we know if your servers are running? How do we know if something bad is happening on your site? How do we stop it? What do we do once it goes wrong? And uh, so I really like kind of thinking a little bit of, about that sort of thing. And so I, I just kind of wanted to bring that up. I thought this was like a kind of a good good point to talk about because um, it just ties into a lot of other things that I think of as being DevOpsy. 
but are like kind of obviously more centered around the specific roles. Like if you're implementing a feature, obviously you're the one going to be adding the feature flag. So you're going to need some sort of orchestration piece for that, dealing with that orchestra, that uh, setting of that flag or taking it back or maybe rolling it out for some people, not others and, and measuring that and reporting that. But I think of that, all that stuff as being kind of tied into DevOps, but I haven't seen a lot of that being written about in terms of, or classifying that as DevOps. So I was curious what y'all thought about that. Go ahead. Wait, I'm trying to wrap my head around the question again. Oh, uh, do you consider observability, measurability, and um, just kind of um, operations of your production environment to be part of DevOps? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Like, why do you think that there's so much focus on the kind of the build pipeline and you don't hear as much about the other side of things. Because that's our circle, our bubble. Okay, yeah, I think that makes sense. I well hmm. I mean it's so easy for us to too. it's easy for us to grok because you know, it is the world that we live in daily. I th- it's interesting. I think to to Outlaw's point, yes. I think so w- w- the three of us are, are in the process of building a SaaS type product, right? And I think once that thing turns on, then we will probably be very much in the world <laughs> where we're looking at the things that you're talking about, right? Like the heartbeats, the logs, the all that kind of stuff. So to your point, the world that we live in right now is we're all about Hey, when we make a change, we want this thing to be deployed. We want to see it live. We want we want all that stuff, right? Yeah, but we still won't become network engineers, you know, experts. We still won't become uh, sec ops experts, you know, infosec experts. I mean, like, I'm not saying that we won't be doing I mean, our darndest. I mean, I will be. Huh? Yeah. Right, right, sure. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't mean to include you in that. I'm, I was speaking, when I said you, I meant Joe and I. Right, right, fair. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry totally, for that. Totally that confusion. Thanks for thank you for clarifying. Right. So the reason I bring it up uh, is that I think that part of this is that because kind of um, DevOps is still kind of a newer concept in programming. You know, these things take a while to go, and I think that there's kind of um, this notion of maturity in DevOps. And so I think a lot of times it starts with you getting those builds integrating continuously and, and then it leads into testing and then into deploying. And you have to kind of do all these things before you get to that other side, right? You can't monitor things until you're like reliably getting them up there. So I think that's part of it is I think there's just a lot less people that have kind of gotten to this good side of things. Uh, we're still kind of getting there. But also I think that this side of things is particularly hard to kind of learn on your own. Like if you want to learn, you know, view – then there are 10 million articles that will tell you how to get started with, with Vue. And you can get very specific about the little things you want to do, like, um, you know, SVG animations with Vue or, you know, whatever. It's very targeted. But when it comes to, um, dealing with, um, you know, graphing your number of orders and setting up an alert if the number of orders goes too high or too low, then that's something that's very specialized. And there's not many people doing that because they haven't reached that point in maturity. And you just can't really run off and kind of do that stuff on yourself. You need to have like real life streaming data before you can even kind of work on that, right? That kind of goes back to what I said earlier too. And it ties in perfectly with it is you build stuff like the, as developers, you typically build things assuming that they'll work, right? 
it's only as time goes on that you find out these things that, that you know that you need to look for. Like you said, somebody that's not worked in e-commerce, you go and naively write an e-commerce application. And at the beginning, it's going to be fine. But as you start, you know, like imagine an Amazon, right? Like I forget there was, you remember when it went down for like 15 minutes, there were all these oh, articles yeah. about how many millions of dollars they lost per second, Right. The thing is, until you get to a scale or you get to some sort of level to where you can actually start seeing trends like, why did my orders drop off? I was getting a hundred, um, a minute, you know, most of the time. Why did it drop to, to two a minute? Right. You only find out that you need to look for those things when those type of events eventually happen to you. And so it is a maturity thing. It's an well, experience thing. It's a, there is another approach that you could take to it though. Machine learning, AI. <laughs> no, 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 no. I like where your head's at, though. Uh, but no, you you could take the um, the Netflix approach with the Chaos Monkey, right? That's just you know, imagine imagine if you in, if you did, weren't in the cloud, you had a server room, and you just let a monkey go in and like you know bounce around and pull cords or whatever or cables, right? And the Netflix approach to that was like, okay, let's create something that'll just randomly create chaos in our infrastructure that is in the cloud and make sure that our environment can sustain those kind types of random outages by, uh, you know, having things automated in a way that it'll be like, Oh, that went down, spin it back up over here or, you know? Yeah. So that's also another level of maturity. It is. Right? It is. And that that's, it's kind of why there is such a dominant player. Right. I mean, it's the other side of this is, is it's like you said, it's super hard to, um, know what to do there because it's incredibly difficult to simulate, right? Like you don't know what you don't know until it happens, right? Like you don't know that your server is going to get deadlocked transactions. Like, man, that never happened before. All of a sudden our, our traffic doubled and now we have these issues, right? And so then you find yourself putting things in that, that say, all right, if I see this, then do this. Right. And it's, it's after you've hit that level Hopefully you do reach that level to where your software has enough success to where you have to deal with that. And then you start looking at, at things like these heartbeats and all that. But I also want to bring up one of the reasons why we've mentioned Kubernetes so much on this is because it's sort of like the, I don't know, is it, we want to call it the popular way of doing things. The, the big daddy. It, it's man. If we're counting lines of code, I think it counts as the biggest. Yeah. It's pretty close. What? Yeah. Two million. I I don't know. I can't say how many how many lines swarm is. Let me see. Maybe we can find out. Up there. Um, but well, I think uh, Kubernetes is specifically like, or one of the reasons this is so exciting is because you can do that on your own on a single computer to get started. So it it's really hard to spin up twelve different cloud services and turn them off and on and see if they work or not without spending a bucket of money. If you've only got one server. Good luck with that Simeon army, right? Mm -hmm. But Kubernetes is something that you can start with now and you can get started cheaply, like if five bucks a month, basically all you need is a, like a simple Linode server and you can get going on this uh, and publish your site. It's not going to be very good. <laughs> it's, it's not going to perform nearly as well as if you just kind of deployed it uh, manually, but uh, it is something that you can do today to get started. So if you wanted to kind of start building your DevOps muscle, then that's something that you could absolutely go buy a course on or, you know, read an article and get started today. And that's been rare up until recently. Well, one of the things that's to add on to that that is so cool about Kubernetes 
is it sort of brings in a lot of everything we've talked about so far, right? So, so like you said, it's kind of hard to do the heartbeat and the site reliability type stuff and, and all the metrics and all that. If you just go deploy your thing out, you know, you set up a server and all that because you have to build all those pieces into your application. Kubernetes kind of gives you a little bit of everything. So, yeah. So you can stand up your infrastructure with code. So there's your build and your deployments. Like you could, you could have your application gets built, right? Then you have something that will deploy it into an image, a container image, so that it can then run on Kubernetes. Well, then once you have this thing set up to where it's running on Kubernetes, it's already got stuff built into the Kubernetes platform to be able to look at heartbeats, to be able to ship logs, to be able to do all that kind of stuff. So, so. One of the reasons why we've been talking about it so much is because they've kind of, I mean, Google has been a thing for a minute or two, you know, since they've built, you mean Bing? Yeah, Bing. Um, they built Kubernetes and open sourced it, right? And they ran into a ton of these problems and they realized early on they needed ways to find out, is my service alive? What's going on in my service? You know, how do I track this stuff? There's dashboards for it. Like there's all kinds of things you can do. So I wanted to call that out. Like we've said it a lot in this episode. And that's one of the reasons is because it gives you a lot of tooling and it's already there. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a stack overflow answer that I'll include that uh, is the accepted answer. And this was from a couple of years ago. And at the time, uh, Kubernetes was like 1.2 million lines of code versus Docker, um, not Swarm, but just Docker was over 200,000 lines of code. And because the, the question was, hey, why is Kubernetes source code an order of magnitude larger than other orchestrators? And um, you know, the the answer was talking about like, hey, well, you know, in, there's a lot of bloat con- coming from other supporting libraries, but it's also way more feature rich. To your point. Um, than others. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, it's since, you know, gone eclipsed 2 million lines. So this answer should be updated. Good Lord. That's yeah, we talked about a uh, Docker for developers uh, in April of 2018. And at the time I remember feeling, I absolutely felt bait and switch. So I was like, I learned Docker. I fell in love. This is great. And then I go to deploy it and everyone's like, you got to learn Kubernetes now. And it was frustrating because I felt like, oh, Docker did all the things that I need. But now that I, I've learned more about the space and got more experience, I absolutely see like, oh, there's a lot more to really running in production and deploying the whole pipeline. Even like rolling upgrades is a great case where like if you need to upgrade the software and you take node one down at a time and there's just a lot of complexity there. And Kubernetes has the <laughs> deals with that complexity and it provides templates and uh, kind of uh, actions and, you know, almost like interfaces around common type actions that need to take place. And so I, I think any, any company now that's starting today and is looking to go to the cloud and is looking at growing and building scaling to a billion users, I think Kubernetes, Kubernetes is going to factor into that. And so, you know, I hate to say it because I felt like, you know, Docker is like, everyone needs to learn Docker. And now I'm saying like, yeah, well, now we all learn need to learn Kubernetes too, but uh, it just makes so much sense if you're going that direction. That's obviously not everybody. If you're doing desktop software, it's not a, it's not that big of a deal. But uh, the good news here, the the thing I'm kind of clinging to is that Kubernetes is right now something that you can pick up and learn today. This isn't it's not behind some like giant paywall like the the cloud has been for so long, and so I'm really excited about it. 
and I'm also scared and terrified and don't know enough about it. You know, our, our friend John, he, he made a great point. He was like, you know, the way to think about Kubernetes is it's like spinning up your own cloud. It is. You know, if, I mean, if you really wanted to think about it, right? Like, you know, cause you could spin up your entire application in Kubernetes and, you know, but yeah, we're kind of a little bit off topics, but you know, yeah, it's Kubernetes, right. Kubernetes, awesome. Docker, it was yesterday's news. No, no. No, 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 just kidding. Still there. Come on. <laughs> or they use containers, but I'm just kidding. But I'm, yeah, I so do. so going back, I, I wanted to wrap all that in because you know, again, I, I think Joe hit on a very good point in that there are a lot of sides that aren't just building and deploying. Right? There's the stuff after it's running. What's happening? It needs to stay running. Right? That's part of of this DevOps culture. Is hey, how do I know when it's dead? How do I know when I need to spin up another one? How do I know when the load has exceeded my capacity and I need more infrastructure, right? Like there are so many bits and pieces to this whole DevOps world that is just insane in scope. It's it's hard to keep up with. Yeah. Like how do I know if my AWS bill is going to be three times what it was last month? Oh, God. Yeah, that can Oops. happen too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I put together a, a little list here. I'm actually I went through the DevOps checklist from DevOpsChecklist.com, which was put together by the, some of the writers of like a De- DevOps Handbook and a Phoenix Project. And I I plugged a couple of those out and added my own. Just um, we don't have to go through all these, but I just kind of wanted to say like, you know, we talked about DevOps kind of being a, like a, a maturity scale. So I kind of wanted to look at it's like if you were kind of working on a web develop a, a web app, you know, today. Right now, if you're trying to kind of gauge where you're at and how far you have to go, and, or and if you have nothing, you know, to start with, like basically how you would kind of get started, and if you already started, where like kind of what your next steps are. I thought I thought it might be kind of cool to to breeze through these a little bit. But uh, some of the early questions on that I came up with were basically just dealing with continuous uh, integration. Like, are you building on every commit to, to master? Does the build block when uh, the build fails? Are uh, you running tests? Uh, things right, like is that. Is this rhetorical? Am I supposed to be answering to any of these? No. Uh, no and um, But if you want to jump in on something, please do. Um, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, you, you mentioned uh, building on air, on commits to master, but even better than that, um, you know, all of the environments, GitLab, GitHub, uh, Azure DevOps, I mean, you can build on pull request. So before it even yeah. gets to master or whatever your uh branch you know mainline branch is you can build and know whether or not it's going to work and um uh run the test for it in some environments you can even like deploy an instance of that uh of that branch out to see like for others to be able to see like hey this is what it would look like and and one other thing to add to this too this also goes back into the culture thing that we talked about before is when you first start doing this stuff, there will be pushback, right? Oh, yeah. Like, are you building on every commit? Can a pull request be merged in before it's successfully built? Uh, will you allow a pull request if the unit tests haven't passed, right? You will get pushback. I didn't even touch that project. I don't care if it fails. Right. And, and Yeah, but the rest of us do. So, So even this very beginning that we're talking about here, this is where – like you can start making the culture see the value, right? Like, yo, if this thing fails and the pull request gets merged in, you're going to break every single developer that pulls this branch next, right? And 
you'll get pushback because people will be like, I don't want to wait five minutes for my, for my PR to get merged in. It's like, wait a second, dude. Right. <laughs> no, no, hold on. Dude or dudette. Hey, this is helping everybody, right? This isn't to stop you from being able to do something. This is to ensure that everybody is able to work all the time. So, all right. Well, what do you mean you can't wait five minutes? Yeah, it's ridiculous. But hey, oh, by the way, though, I mean, we keep talking about build, but um, like I've actually been in environments where the your pull request can fail because it of um other metrics, not, not necessarily mm. compilation, but you can have, um, like maybe style is one. Like if you didn't, if you didn't adhere to whatever the accepted style is, that's then, really lame by the way. N- well, I mean, there's, there's formatting tools for that that you can plug into your source control system. Yep. So, <laughs> so I, I don't disagree that you could automate that, but I have seen environments where it's like, Hey, you, we gave you the tools to automate it and you didn't run it and you still try to commit it anyways. And right. so we're failing it. it you um, know, you know, a good one is if we go back to something like independ or, uh, well, sonar cube is something like the cyclic, um, complexity, cyclic complexity. Yeah. Okay, that's not quite where I'm going, but, but that could be one. If it goes above a certain number, fail it, right? Like, Hey, you, you just introduced some crazy complexity to this particular well, file class, whatever. Well, where I, where I thought you were going to go was on um, if the code coverage drops, mm. right? So, so in other words, uh, you set some minimum threshold for the accepted code coverage that you have testing tests for, and if you were to introduce a large body of new code that might like lessen the uh, code coverage percentage, you could fail the the pull request. I'm not as because with you that obviously one. haven't included test to cover that new code. Yeah, I'm, I don't love that one as much. I think when we went through the clean code, clean arc, I don't remember which one it was, but the whole thing of testing your public APIs is more important than testing every little individual thing. Like that, I'm still torn on that one. I I, I still don't know where you draw the lines. Well, I, don't, I mean, you're assuming that the large body of new code that you introduced was all private. Just saying, I I don't. But that know would that still mean that. that would still mean though, if your code coverage dropped, it would still mean that you have, uh, you have private code that none of your public methods are running through that your current tests cover, and yeah. so that's what it's trying to capture. I is think that I you think you're you're testing. It's the eighty twenty rule for me, and this is this is completely off track. But oh, I mean, that's what we do best, right? But it's. Test the code that is being used the most, right? Like if you're writing unit tests for code that gets hit once every million tries and that million tries is over a year period, then it's like, okay, what value did you add? So I'm not as, I'm not as huge of a stickler on, on code coverage as I am just making sure that the things that are important are actually being done. Well, I mean, you could still say though, like you could say, Hey, our code coverage percentage is, you know, 50%. Like fifty percent of the code has to be covered by unit tests, or we won't, you know, allow new code in. Yeah. Right. So now you you introduce a a large body of new code. Like you're like, hey outlaw, here's twenty thousand new lines of code, right? And and the code coverage now, you know, in, but there were no unit tests to go along with that, right? And even though it might have been like all private uh, functions, and now the code coverage drops to forty eight percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, still, it does illustrate the point, though, that there are multiple things that you could yes. use to to look at your code and determine whether or not should I go on, should I not. Yeah, and you can decide what's right for you. Like maybe, you know, you're willing to slip on coverage for a little bit, but it doesn't mean that you have to block at this step. Right. So, you know, we're talking about quality metrics. It doesn't mean that you can't deploy to production until you get 100%. You know, you can you can mix and match and do what feels right for your team. Uh, but kind of on that note, like uh, our other uh, KPIs for production. So I've put this one in next. So I put this even before you're deploying to production. It's just figuring out what your your key performance indicators are. Maybe it's number of orders per hour. Maybe it's CPU percentage, or maybe it's um you know average request response. Or like what metrics matter to you, and how can you get those? So even, I figure that's something that you could get even before you start automatically deploying to production, just to know you know, what kind of the baseline is. And, uh, you know, that kind of goes along with having, getting basically ideally one spot to view them all. I know that that's tough, especially if you're talking about like orders and CPU, like getting those into one dashboard, like that's, that might take some work or be out of your hands, but, uh, you know, it's a nice goal and it's nice to know at least where your holes are. If there's some key performance indicators that are critical to your business that you can't see, then that's a pretty big problem, right? Well, and, and that can also help define like, okay, well, when do you start scale horizontally? Right. So that yep. like the CPU utilization might be one or, you know, you, I mean, when you look at utilization factors, it could be CPU network or disk memory response times. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's a whole bunch of different things in that regard that you, you could use as deciding factors or maybe a combination of them to say like, okay, add one more or add two more or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so deploying after every build, that's kind of an obvious one. Uh, do you have a disaster recovery plan? A lot of, a lot of companies don't, a lot of organizations don't. And then even after you have the plan, there's of course actually testing the plan, which, uh, I've got quite a bit further down on the list <laughs> because I know how scary that can be. But of course you can do whatever, you know, matches for you. And of course you should have all of this stuff all the time before you even code or whatever, but, uh, we know how things are in the real world. And so. You know, whatever makes sense for you. We all have uh, stakeholders that we have to be held accountable to. But that's an important one. Well, I don't know that I agree with that last statement, though, where you said that, like, you should have all of this. Uh, of course, we should have all of this ahead of time. I mean, I, I think we've all, like, grown up to now understand, like, hey, you know what? It's impossible to ask for. Oh, yeah. And even if we did yeah. have it, by the time we would get it, it would be outdated. So it's better to l- not even try to... uh aspire to that goal like why waste the time i think it depends on what you're doing and and i think i i either heard something or i read an article about this if you are writing a service and this was the example that was given if you're writing a service that people can upload their family photos to and you are their backup mode you better have a disaster recovery plan in place because people are trusting you with their life memories, right? So if they're giving you money and their data and you don't have a disaster recovery plan in place, that's wrong, right? Like morally you should feel like you've done something wrong there. I think in that particular example, I would argue that it depends on like, what are we talking about? Like, you know, you could make the argument that, well, let's get the service live first. Let's start, trying right let's get it out there and then you know maybe we only introduce it in the beginning to close family and friends with like hey 
You're going to lose everything. <laughs> you, you know, we're still we're still iterating towards making this better. But, you know, hey, there's this one checkbox that we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, no, that's know, fair. Know that that's there. That's fair. But I right? guess what I'm so saying is... So it could is- still be in production use, you know, quote production. Yeah. But, but like, uh, uh, what do you call it where you, like, you know, you limit... Uh, uh, Closed beta. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Closed beta, right? Yeah. I mean, that's fine. What I'm saying, though, is be aware of what you're making, right? Like, yeah, it, it all depends. Right. It, it all completely depends. You know, there are certain things that you need to take more seriously than others, right? Like, if you're just doing the next, you know, car club on people who own the new Toyota Supra, then yeah, you probably don't need a disaster recovery plan, right? Yes, it is sick. Um, <laughs> but on the flip side, you know, well played, sir. Well played. Know what you're doing. All right. So, I, I just I just been like you can find someone on Twitter that will wag their finger at you for it, just about anything. Like yeah. there's people who work at Google on a thousand member teams, whatever, and they'll say, "What? You didn't have your uh you weren't HIPAA compliant before you launched your uh super app? <laughs> like give me a break, you know. <laughs> there's just all sorts of different orgs and you really can't compare someone that has a thousand employees to a team of 3. Definitely. You know, the, the needs are different, the the ways you need to work together are just all different. Yep. Well, well, to that point, Joe, there's also some out there, though, that work for these large teams, like your thousand member team that you just mentioned, uh, you know, where like, you know, you might be able to afford like, hey, you know what, uh, this this team of 200 people out of our thousand are going to focus solely on uh, these aspects of our DevOps world. But I still I still can't get behind it. But but it exists. It exists. Uh, I'm not a fan. Uh, again, yeah, deep specialization. Yeah, specialization. I think specialization in the tools makes sense. But the overall overarching encompassing thing of who needs to be involved, I think you're right. I think everybody should have their hands in it. That's what drives me nuts. I, I got it. You know, I got to go there. With full stack, when people hate on full stack developers because they're a specialist. There's people that like Jeff Atwood wrote Stack Overflow by himself, right? Was he full stacker back? Like, you know, was he back or front? It Like, it doesn't even make sense, but it just depends for everywhere. And it drives me nuts to see people who have dramatically different experiences telling other people whether or not they're a myth. Right, right. Especially when you know that you're one of those because you've got, you know, experience in Elasticsearch, C Sharp, JavaScript, oh. SQL, uh, you know. Nah, he's a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Got yeah. him. Joe's Look a unicorn. at him. <laughs> you can see the, the rainbow dust just like. Every time he like wipes off his shoulder, like a little bit of a yep. little bit of rainbow flies yep. off. Yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, feature flags is uh, one thing I wanted to bring up because uh, I just think it's really cool. And like uh, I, you know, Launch Darkly is a company that does specializes in feature flags. And like a lot of people, when I first heard about it, I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> that sounds like settings to me. But when I heard about all the different things that they can do with feature flags, like being able to turn them on and off at runtime or turn them on for people on the West Coast or the East Coast or 10% of your users and and tying that into the metrics that you get back. So you can say, like, I'm going to start rolling out this feature slowly. And if it's successful and it doesn't fail, then maybe I'll continue. Otherwise, maybe I'll roll back and be able to control that stuff outside of the application is really awesome. But that's something that you don't get until you're, like, far along in the maturity process, right? Yep. And that's part of your DevOps thing too that we're talking about because typically how you deploy that stuff, how you flip those things on and off is, is very much part of that world. Well, I mean, they, they actually talk about that in the handbook too, which, you know, they describe it as like, um, you know, your, your, your feature has been out in production 
long before it actually gets used. You just have it turned off. Right. Right. By some kind of a toggle. I think they were actually referred to it as feature toggles. Um, mm-hmm. but, but you have the feature turned off so that, you know, you can keep integrating it into the application, right? So that sooner rather than later, it, you're like, you can imagine a world like, you know, like picture a long, a long running branch, right? Like what would be easier if you could go ahead and merge that thing in sooner rather than later, but the code just not be live yet. And that's not getting hit yet. Or, you know, a year later you have to do a, a merge, no, right? You, you have to do the merge. Right, right. <laughs> I have to do merge. the merge for you. Right. Right. Like that, that's just an awful environment. Right. So, uh, you know, they describe it like, you know, you kind of already have, um, uh, some ideas to like, Hey, is this thing even going to compile? Right. Cause you're like, Oh, of course it is. It's already been out there a lot. It's already been in the running application for a long time. It just hasn't been getting used. Right. So, which yep. by the way, we, we mentioned before, like we, yeah, the, the DevOps handbook is on our, uh, on our agenda at some point. I don't uh, know when we'll are. get to it, but yeah. Hey, wait, you, you skipped over the SLO. I, I don't know. Yeah. What I, figured S- I kind of covered it. Uh, service, uh, level objectives. So Objective. if I say like, I want all page requests to be finished within 200 milliseconds, something like that, or uh, you know, you basically have some sort of SLA. Like I want to have. So such and such latency or so many messages delivered per minutes or never more than this backlog, whatever. Okay. I didn't know what the O was. Yep. Um, the book we're reading next, we'll uh, talk about it quite a bit. Cool. Uh, data intensive applications. That's going to be, uh, good. do you have a post border process, uh, in case anything goes wrong? Just think, you know, it's an if, if anything ever goes wrong, <laughs> not a win. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's never going to uh-huh. go wrong. Right. And this one really should be way at the beginning, but uh, are all your configurations basically versioned and encrypted and you're able to kind of like see, inspect, roll keys, all sorts of stuff like that. That Depending on what you're doing, that should be way sooner in the process. Dude, I will say on this note with configurations, I never had sat down and thought about how complicated that can be because you can either have configurations as code that get stored as files in your repository. You can put them in a database and centralize them that way. There's so many different ways you can attack configuration and they all have wide reaching implications of what, what route you choose. And there are actually tools. I, I want to say that, um, new relic actually has tools for that. And there there's, there's tons of them like configuration management ends up becoming a problem when you start really getting deep into automation and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it, it was pretty interesting. There's some, what am I thinking of for new relic? What's their main product or something? There must uh, be something that like I've heard of. Are they Ansible? Or no. that name sounds familiar and I can't place it. I don't know it's either. It's going to eat at me. Whatever. Here, products. Here we go. Uh, don't know. <laughs> yeah, I looked and I was like, yeah, I'm not seeing it. Hey, so one thing like we didn't touch. exception handling. Oh, okay. One thing that we didn't touch on that much that I also thought was a big part that in this whole DevOps world is this constant feedback loop. It, so they talked about Agile in at least in the New Relic article about how Agile is part of the whole DevOps thing. And really what they're talking about is, hey, you want a fast feedback loop. So if somebody decides that they want a new feature in your software, right, and that might be coming from the business, and as a development team, you're able to get that in place in three days. 
the fact that they can see it quickly is a big deal, right? So that's part of that culture thing of it's not necessarily the agile methodology. It's the whole thing of, hey, we want something. You can see it quickly because we've enabled it through, you know, this mixture of development operations. You can now, once this code's done, you'll be able to see it somewhere. Maybe it's on a dev server, but it's not something where it's like, oh, we're going to have to get the build team in on Saturday to do this, and then we're going to have to get it deployed out. You know, it's this this constant feedback loop, which we've talked about as iterations in the past, but DevOps enables you to do that. You know, having that culture allows you to do those things quicker. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention, too, going back to a conversation earlier, we were talking about, like, like um, the ability to, like, script out or automate the dev environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, um, system is uh we didn't mention Vagrant. Have you ever heard of Vagrant? So with Vagrant, Been it's a, a yeah, it's, it's a tool for uh you know where you can build and maintain uh virtual development environments. So you know whether whether it's like a virtual box or Docker containers or AWS, you can spin up uh you know your your environment. I have heard about you, them and it's so been instead a long of like time. instead of like uh you know a docker run or compose up it could be vagrant up. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Cool. Cool, right? I thought you might like that one. Heck. Uh I thought it would maybe be interesting, you know, as we wrap this up though to um go through some of the myths of DevOps that uh as outlined in the uh the handbook. You want to do that? Let's do it. All right. So tell me what you think. All right. DevOps is only for startups. <laughs> no. It's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> so much better. They don't have so, those. There's uh, so many things. Like whenever you get some DevOps magic sprinkled on, it's like so much better. And you're like, why didn't we do this sooner? Right. Yeah. They The, the newer ones don't have the old bad habits or like just old habits you know, ingrained into the culture, right? So for a startup, it's easier, but no, it's not just for startups. I think that's really the key is the old habits, right? People just, oh, this is how we do it. Right, right. We just always like, you know, uh, build the app. And if you see it, then right click and say publish. And then here's the, here's the IIS server that you're going to publish it to. Yep. Like what a disgusting way to, to even think about deploying your app, right? Oh man. All right. Uh, DevOps replaces Agile. Nope. Sounds like it's a part of it. I mean, it right. seems like they're good friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. to your point that you made earlier, right? Was that it, it's par- part of the fast feedback feedback loop or feedbook loop, as feedbook I almost loop. said. Those are good ones. Um, okay. This one I had to like, I got to make sure I had the definition because I was like, what? What? All right. So DevOps is incompatible with ITIL. I don't know what ITIL is. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, IT, ITIL is Information Technology Infrastructure Library. Still don't know what that is. Right? <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Wikipedia says it's formerly an acronym that is a set of detailed practices for IT service management that focuses on aligning services with the needs of the business. Great. So the point is, is DevOps is not incompatible with that. To your point, it's about that feedback loop again. It's all about trying to align these things so that you can get 
faster feedback loops and, you know, hey, is this working? Or, hey, I've got an experiment. Can we try this? Can we see if this is even, you know, worth our time? Uh, what's next? DevOps is incompatible with information security and compliance. Well, we no, it's way better. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that was the official answer in the book. Way more better. Way more better. Yep. Yeah. Um, As you do it all the time, you're not trying to chuck it on in the end. Like, okay, we got three days to figure out if and how to make it sound like we're HIPAA compliant. (laughs) (laughs) And and this one I I really like because this one kind of drives home, uh, you know, maybe I should save this one for last. Mm. No, I won't. Uh, DevOps means eliminating IT operations or no ops. No, it's it's MoOps. <laughs> the also the accepted answer in the book. Yeah. More consistent and reproducible ops, I would say. Yeah, it's more like um, they say instead of IT ops doing manual work that comes from tickets, it enables developer productivity through APIs and self-service platforms that create environments, test and deploy code, monitor, display production telemetry, and so forth. Yeah, think about how nice it'd be to have, like, if you do have ops people now, be like, instead of them doing your deploys, they're um, tracking and monitoring and learning whenever the response times go less than this, or they're alerting if new products aren't being sold, or, you know, just stuff like that that would help the business more. Yeah. Uh, So myth number uh, 8,000, because I wasn't counting. Uh, DevOps is just infrastructure as code or automation. Before this podcast, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now I think it's culture. Honestly, even before the handbook, right? Like, like, cause I've, I've definitely was of the opinion, like, hey, I, you know, when I think of DevOps, I think of like automating things, right? Yep. And, and I still largely feel that way though, but, uh, but I do believe in the culture part, right? Yeah. I think again, it just goes back to vocabulary and how people communicate that. And typically when they say that, that is what they're referring to. Yeah. So, so the way, the way the authors of the, of the handbook worded is while many of the DevOps patterns shown in the book require automation, DevOps also requires cultural norms and an architecture that allows for the shared goals to be achieved throughout the IT value stream. I like it. Right. So, yeah. And, and, and that was a key part that we haven't even hit on really was that the architecture of your application needs to allow for this. Right. So that's a whole mindset right there to, mm-hmm. to even consider as part of it. Um, all right. The last myth DevOps is only for open source software. No, I don't think that one's a myth. I think that one was just true, right? Not even close. Oh, I got that. They tricked me. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I totally look forward to going through that in a, that book in a deep dive, though. It's uh, free for a lot of open source, like uh, like Circle CI's. Uh, what's the JavaScript uh, Cypress? Free for open source. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, even even um, like platforms like Azure DevOps that we've talked about earlier in the show they have uh you know one of the one of the tiers for azure devops is um you know if if it's a community or free open source project then you know you can use the tooling for free and even if your business uh pays for azure devops if you have projects that the business does that are in the open 
then they can use Azure DevOps for portions of Azure DevOps for free. Yep. So in terms of like parallel builds and deployments and whatnot. So, uh, not to mention, you know, the capabilities of like GitHub or GitLab or whatever. This episode is sponsored by educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book, so there's no need to scrub through hours of video to get to the parts that you really care about. And incredibly, all of their courses have free trials and a 30-day return policy, so there's no risk to you. You can give it a try and see if you like it. And, you know, last episode we were talking about uh, trying to find, like, hey, what's going to be next, right? And just when I thought I was going to be giving Rust a go, they announced their latest one, Grokking Data Science. Like, how, how can you not give that one a go? Well, uh, the one I've still got my eye on is uh, machine learning for software engineers. And I was just looking at the stats on it. So there's 87 lessons with eight quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, two code snippets, and 36 illustrations. And the, il- the illustrations are really, really cool. A lot of times they're, uh, they're animated, just really neat. And uh, you can actually see a lot of that stuff uh, that's available, a lot of the content, just by going to this course and uh, you can get uh, kind of a glimpse of what it's like. And if you think it's uh, right for you or if you're just interested in it, you can give it a shot and uh, they've got the 30-day return policy if uh, you're not feeling it. All right. Well, I'll see your 36 illustrations on the machine learning for software engineers and raise you 208 illustrations <laughs> on grokking data science because, let's face it, data science is all about visualizing the data and understanding what's there, right? That's amazing. So start your learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. All right. So uh, I hope you've you've had an opportunity now to like hear my side of the argument <laughs> as to, uh, uh, you know, if if DevOps is a a job title or if it's a job function and um, you can let me know if I'm wrong by uh, emailing Joe at um, or just hit him up on Slack and he'll let me know. Um, No. All right. So with that, we have a, we'll have a bunch of links for the resources we like related to uh, this episode. Uh, The DevOps handbook is absolutely going to be in that, but the book that even came before that, uh, the Phoenix Project, which is by some of the same authors, which basically is like a um, a story version of of DevOps, uh, will be in there. But there's some other links as well. And with that, we will whoa, head. Whoa, in- whoa, 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 so, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So I would say the Phoenix Project is kind of like Office Space, but for DevOps and a book. <laughs> so good, entertaining, uh, but you, you also learn a few things. But Really important, there's a new book called The Unicorn Project that is coming out really soon, uh, November 26th of 2019. That's the much-anticipated follow-up 
to the Phoenix Project. So I'm very excited about that, though I will probably wait for the audio version. Is this gonna is this gonna be on our shopping spree for Black Friday? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Well, we've already got a link to it. You can pre-order the hardcover version right now. Boom. Or the Kindle version. Kindle's much better. Won't hurt your wrists. I'll wait for Audible. <laughs> DevOps Handbook is on Audible. Oh, nice. It is. Yep. All right. Well, now I can unwoe. <laughs> what would that be? Uh, woo, 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 woo. How, 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 how? <laughs> Something. Uh, yeah. And with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. And I'm going first because I've got a scoop outlaw. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Had to get in there. Okay. All right. So yeah. uh, I got this <laughs> message. Oh, no, no, no. We're not doing this. Uh, Gary K. Ray. Uh, Gary Ray K. Thank you very much, Gary, for sending me a wonderful Git tip and sending it to me before using it to outlaw, I'm sure, because why would you send it to both? So <laughs> this is... I'm pretty sure it was sent to me first. This should be my tip. Uh, no, this is definitely my tip because I'm going first. Uh, thank you, Gary Ray K. And... <laughs> This is a really nice blog post on how to write good messages. And it's got a great example of the best alleged uh, geek bit that this person ever saw. And it's long, you know, so don't get scared. But he talks about why this is so good. And uh, I got a couple of the reasons down here. Um, but basically, it boils down to there being the reason for the change, it being searchable, which is something I never think about uh, in terms of git commits. Uh, telling a story, and it teaches, and finally it builds trust. Well, I don't care about building trust. But I do think it's really cool that it's searchable and it just tells a story. It tells you um, what the problem was, how you reproduced it, why the fix was in there. And it's just wonderful. Like if I saw this in history, like, you know, I can imagine looking up the gifts to be like, why the heck is – oh. But then you look at the commit that went along with this and it looks like uh, it was pretty measly. So uh, <laughs> it's pretty but, funny to see. It. It's basically a small configure change. <laughs> I mean it totally like, is. The, the, yeah, it's tiny. The, the commit message is like – 20 times longer than the one line uh, change that was made. Hey, I don't yeah, want to burst crazy. your bubble, but he cheated on you guys with me too. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, Gary, we're on to you. We know you were double <laughs> dipping, but, um, uh, you know, thank you anyway. And I'm glad that I got to uh, present that Git tip first. No, that was my tip. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you, Gary. All right. All right. Fine. Uh, on the fly, let me pick up some. Oh, hey, here you go. All right, since we're talking about Slack, because that's how that one was uh, given to us. By the way, if you want to uh, leave us any more, uh, you know, if you want to leave us a tip, you could hit us up on Slack and uh, share your tip that way. There's actually a, a tips uh, Slack channel uh, where you can uh, also, you know, maybe give it to me, but you could maybe give it to Joe or to Alan or you know secretly to all of us and then we'll fight for it there's also cb.show slash tips yes there is slash tips all right so uh this one i'm stealing from alan (laughs) (laughs) because uh i didn't realize this but if you are in slack and uh you're like oh man i typoed it and you want to like you know fix it or you know maybe you you hit enter too, too soon or whatever you can actually uh Wait, it's just somebody, up arrow. Yeah, I took it out. It's just up. 
Oh, I thought it was control up no, arrow. You don't have to do that. That's oh, keys. man. Yeah, I'm helping you out here. It's just up arrow. And you can, uh, you, so you, you up arrow and it will take you to your last message to, uh, edit. And I'm going to give you a link to, um, uh, Slack actually has a documentation, has a page of documentation where it has diff- various commands, uh, with all the keyboard shortcuts. So I'm going to leave you that. It is awesome. All right. So then because it is my favorite portion of the show, I've got 20. All right. So <laughs> here, here we go. Um, so the first one, Dave Follett, super opinionated Dave Follett at this point in time. Uh, I'm sure it will change eventually. He had one that was kind of cool. And I'm just going to give you the title of this one and we'll have a link in the show notes for it. You can integrate your Linux commands into Windows with PowerShell and the Windows subsystem for Linux. So it's basically, if I remember right, looking through this, the gist of it's almost like having wrappers. So you can actually access Linux commands in PowerShell, which is super cool for people that like to automate things in Windows. All right. This one, this next one grew out of a pain that I was experiencing. So I was working on a piece of open source software and running things. And it was, I think it might've been an Ubuntu. I don't remember, but you know, like if you guys ever LS a directory and you'll see that, Oh, well this folder actually points to another folder via symlink, right? Like you'll see an arrow and there'll be nice little colors showing you that, Hey, this isn't really the directory. It points over here. So that's cool and all, but what you don't get is if you then CD over to that directory and you LS it, you'll see that it actually sim links somewhere else, right? So you could actually have something, and in this case it was Java, and it was driving me crazy, is it was actually sim linked like four or five times. And I was like, where's the end of this rabbit hole, right? Like at some point I got so tired of trying to trace down where I was going and losing where I'd been that I couldn't keep track of anything. There is a command in Linux called read link that will actually give you the end of the rabbit hole. So if you are in a directory and you know that there's sim links in there by doing an LS and you see it, if you want to know where that thing actually ends up, you can do read link dash F and then whatever the thing is that sim linked and it will show you the ultimate destination. Beautiful. Save me time. Save me the few extra hairs I still have left on my head. Hey, I want to just like uh, give some more uh, love to that one from uh, Dave. Yeah, super opinionated. Super Dave. opinionated Dave. Yes. Come on now. He used to be super, what was it, nice? Super good. Super good Dave. Super good Dave. Now he's super opinionated, yeah. which I like both versions. I mean, good. show some respect. That's right. All right. All right. But, but because uh, what you would, I don't know that you you gave this the credit, but like this allows you to to invoke your favorite bash commands from PowerShell. PowerShell. Yeah, that's what I said. That's what I said. <laughs> oh, I must not have heard that part. Then. <laughs> I think so I, I apologize. That. Fine, fine. <laughs> you know what? Just call me super unopinionated Mike. <laughs> We needed some more love on it. It is awesome. Like I said, for, for people that are automating things with, with PowerShell, but you want some of that Linux love, you can get it. But this was well, with Windows Subsystem. Yeah, but that's Linux, the part right? that kind of gets me too, though, is cause like, you know, usually if you're in PowerShell, you can automate all kinds of things in PowerShell. 
right? Because in PowerShell, you have commands, you right? have the ability to like use all of your favorite .NET tools, even though you know you're a Go programmer or a Rust programmer, so, you still love .NET, right? I guess where this would come in super handy is like anytime that you're on like a Stack Overflow or something and they, they give you this Linux command, like curl something and with like 20 other things at the end of it, this would allow you to just run that. Or, well, my favorite is the lack of tail, ah. right? Like you could do a get content dash dash or dash wait. There is uh, a tail. PowerShell. There's tail. But this gives you tail. There's tail in that too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, no, no. Get content. You can tail it. Right. That's what get content dash wait. And it'll, and that's what that'll do. No, no, no. It has a tail feature too. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like that's it, what the dash weight does. No, no. Dash weight follows. Dash weight is the equivalent of follow dash tail. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The equivalent of uh, tail minus F for the follow. Yes. Right. Right. But usually when people want to tail something, they want to like follow it. Or at least that's always been like my default. I never mm-hmm. want to just look at the end of the file. <laughs> I, I do sometimes. Really? Yeah, on occasion. Who Not always. does that? I do it. <laughs> I want to see the last five lines that were written because I'm a psychopath. I do it. <laughs> hey, why I got to be psycho? <laughs> because only a psychopath would want to look at the last five lines. Uh, of course, you want to see like the next five also and the five that are coming after that and the five that are coming after that. I just want to see what Who happens. Who wants to look at a random piece of time? When it, yeah, exited. It when it exited. That's all I care uh, about. So I'll break the tie. Alan, that is psychopathic. Jeez, see, come you. on, man. Hey, I know you guys have like a little shell command that's like tail last 50. I don't even want to hear about it. All right. So my – hold on. What else do I have? Not with a dash F. Not okay. So there. I have two more in here, guys. Like seriously, I have two more. So one, this is actually something that goes back to – I don't know if it was last episode. Yeah, I think we it was last about episode. serverless was part of the last Serverless. Episode. So one of the things that came up with this – is we were talking about stateless, right? And and it was awesome. So Devin Goble, aka Catch in Slack, who is an awesome con- contributor to that community, um, Azure has what's called durable functions, and they're really cool because it allows you to have stateful functions, which means that you know you can have functions that sort of communicate and operate with each other to get things done. And there's a link to the page about durable functions. And the cool part is it has a bunch of different patterns. So situations where you need state and how that might actually help you out and how you would architect that thing to work. Um, things like function chaining, uh, fan out, fan in, um, what else they got? Async HTTP APIs. So there's several on here, but the key is there are ways to make serverless functions actually be stateful. So excellent, excellent heads up on that one. And then the last one, I'm only bringing this one up because I actually told somebody about it today. They're like, and I just said it in passing. And they're like, that's amazing. So I've sung praises about Connie Moo. In the past and more recently, Commander, which is sort of like a wrapper for Konamu with additional functionality. Well, the default theme, I don't know exactly which one it is. It's pretty decent if you're in your command line. But if you like tailing the last 50 lines of a log like most normal people do, and there's an error in there, then usually the text is like a super dark red and it's really hard to see. Like it's very difficult to see 
There is a theme in that one. If you go to general settings or settings general, and then there's a section over there where you can choose your color palette. There's one called Babin or Babin. Babin. Say again. Babin. Babun. Okay. Whatever we want to say. It's B-A-B-U-N. It's amazing. Like it's still a darker theme, but they change the color. So like errors are more of like an orange red. And so they stand out. You can read them. And then the other commands and Shelly type, uh, keywords stand out really nice. So, uh, just, you know, if you've been living with the other one and gotten frustrated by it, go into your theme and change it. I think yeah. I'm at the end. Yeah. After, after we did, um, I don't even remember how long ago back it was now. Remember, cause there was, we had talked about over the course of several episodes about, uh, dark themes being bad on the eyes and everything. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to switch everything. So, so I did, right. I switch. I, I went from all of my favorite tools being a dark theme to undoing that. And so specifically for commander, I used uh solarized light as my theme of choice to be easy on the eyes yet not dark. Yeah. I don't like that. Uh, and it's basically like a tan, a tannish kind of background on it. But I, I find it like super easy to read everything. Yeah, like it is nothing, easy to read. Nothing is difficult, but your screen looks dirty. Like that's, I, it's what? weird. I, I feel like there's dirt on my screen. Like I, even when I did it, I was like, that needs to be washed. <laughs> like it's, I'll, I'll break the tide. Yeah. Outlaw your psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I will say though, like, uh, I mean, what do you, do you think it was a year ago that we started talking about that? Like it's I don't miss while. the dark themes now. And, and now when I go back and I look at some of those dark themes, I'm like, whoa. Cause even like this one that you were mentioning, the baboon, uh, <laughs> baboon, baboon, um, whatever. <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, you know, I was looking at that and like some of the blues were like just, they just blended in too much. Mm. Right. And I remember, I remember something on color theory where they were talking about like a blue isn't such a great color. It's a, it's a better color for backgrounds than it is for things in focus. Mm. Um, which is crazy that like, it's the default color for hyperlinks, hyperlinks. <laughs> right. Um, you, you know, what's funny though. I, I will say one of the things that's helped me out. So, Depending on, on what I'm doing, like SQL Server Management Studio still, it has a dark theme. It's awful. Like it, there, there's parts of it that still don't work. One thing that actually helps me, and I don't mind the bright stuff, like the white backgrounds, is turn down the brightness on your monitor. Like seriously, if you, if you cut the backlight on it, then it doesn't bother me as much. But I do find that when it's like a, a flashlight staring in my eyes, like I think Joe's right now, he's staring into a flashlight and it looks like it's burning his retinas. So yeah, yeah I can't see anything anymore. Yeah. So Yeah, I definitely uh do turn down the brightness. So yeah, mine's almost down to all just about nothing. So all right. Well, with that, uh you can decide which one of us is the psychopath. <laughs> Clearly it's Alan. Right. And uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app uh, in case uh, someone happened to like pass this along to you to listen. Um, and uh, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a review. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. 
And while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, and our discussion and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to, uh, I can't read it, uh, Slack, <laughs> uh, codingblocks.net slash Slack. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net where you can find all our social links at the top of the page. Hey, wait, hold on. I wear my sunglasses at night. <laughs> yeah, so so for those listening, Joe uh, Joe threw on some sunglasses and like cranked up the the brightness <laughs> on his monitor. He looks like a welder sitting in I was, his room. <laughs> I, I was expecting either uh, that song, uh, that old song that you were just singing, or uh, um, some kind of like for him to come in. It's like you're listening to the smooth sounds <laughs> of Jay-Z 103.3. WJZ 101 on your uh, FM dial. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That was good. Veteran nice. <laughs> what is that from? Borat. Borat. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite expecting that laughter. It's infectious. <laughs> That's so good. Uh. <laughs> uh.